0: On the 14th of November last year, Beirut Bouchani arrived in Christchurch to speak at a special event organised by word. A man who'd been held in the Manus Island Detention Centre since 2013, who'd been reduced by Australia's Pacific Solution to a kind of unman, a crushed person, as he wrote in No Friend But the Mountains, someone extremely degraded, someone worthless. Yes an example to strike fear into others, to scare people so they won't come to Australia, was here in Christchurch free thanks to word and Rachel King and Amnesty International and Beirut himself, of course, who was then offered a senior adjunct research fellowship at the University of Canterbury and the protective cloak of Notahu's aroha and refugee status and life in this great city uncaged. It is a remarkable story and no friend but the mountains is an extraordinary book written in farsi on a mobile phone smuggled out of manas text by text by text on whatsapp speaking truth to power and asserting repeatedly what appears to be the most audacious and provocative claim a refugee can make the simple right to be seen as human so now he is amongst us as a new zealander And tomorrow, he may or may not have a pie and a few beers and watch the rugby, knowing that even if the All Blacks beat the Wallabies comfortably, it won't have anything on the thrashing that he and Rachel and word and amnesty gave Peter Dutton last year. (laughs) He is a journalist, a writer and a filmmaker and his bravery has somehow extraordinarily led him here to us. Ladies and gentlemen, Behrouz Bouchani.
1: Uh, I had to do my master in two years but I did it in three years. I had to finish high school in four years but I finished in five years (laughs) and I think that is because always I, in any class, I am the most laziest one. (laughs) And I think, I thought that it it changed but for today, yeah, I write nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Because, yeah, I thought that probably some uh, don't write so I say, it's okay so I go to, <laughs> so I write nothing there is some moment in life and I think if you be lucky you experience that moment that you should make decision or you face this concept of courage that you are brave or you are not And I think I experienced something like this in my life. Uh, I describe that in my book, that I was born in war. And I say that as a court, that I am the son of war. And this war is not our war. This war imposed on us and sometimes you know have way just to fight and uh, I think that is not only my experience that is experience of any court in this world. When I was uh, 22 years old, 23 years old, uh, some of my friends they wanted to join Peshmerga and Peshmerga is a, like a guerrilla, the court who are fighting in the mountains. So you should take the gun and fight with the enemies for the system, which is a dictatorship system, which colonize your land, your culture, your everything. And I think that happened for that moment most of the courts face that moment when they are 20 years old 22 23 they think that there is no way i should join Peshmerga. i should go to the mountains and take a gun and fight and i think that happened for me too because i was in my life i witnessed how a language disappear. I witnessed how a language died. I witnessed how the cultural elements died under that system. I mean, and our people in that province that I was born were, became different people. They assimilated in a different culture. And they, that was huge for me. As a young man, to accept that, and that's why when I was 22, 23 years old, some of my friends they joined Peshmerga, and I was facing this. I I was thinking to join because there is a dictatorship system, so there is no no space that you write, you publish what you want, you talk about what you want. Um, Many times I wanted to do that, and I approached them, but I didn't do that, because I convinced myself, no, I cannot do that. I cannot fight in that way, so I should come back and go to the city and right, and fight in this way to challenge the system. So I didn't do that. And still I have this question for myself. Did I, was, I was scared? Or really, I didn't believe in war. I didn't believe to take a gun and fight so still I have this question and I no have answer for that. So 10 years later, it, it is my biggest great uh, honor in my life that I published a book which the title is No Friend But The Mountains, which is a Kurdish term, that the Kurds no have friend but the mountains, and this book translated to at least 15 languages and published in more than 25 countries. And now, and I received many messages from people that they said, oh, we, I'm looking for, I'm searching to write a book about Kurdish people, about your resistance. I mean, I had a small role. So still, but I have that question. And, yeah, that is my personal life. Uh, 10 years later, when I was in Indonesia, I met a man, I think I should make it short. Yeah, I met a man, his name was Ali. So I did two journey to Australia. So the first one, I was almost drowned. So the day someone took me, collected me from the water, and. So I experienced one journey on the ocean and I experienced that how it was dangerous. Then I met a man, his name was Ali, and we were sitting in a balcony in Indonesia in a hotel. He said that, but he didn't uh, have that experience. He said, oh, if I go to the ocean, it's easy. Just in 24 hours, we are in Australia. And I said, no, it's not like that. I did that. And I almost drowned. But he said, no, I, yeah, just, we should do it. (laughs) So we did it. We did it again, but it was second time for me. And many of my friends, they didn't do it. Just they stay in uh, Indonesia. So we did it. After four years, yeah, we reached to a... latest uh, island in the Indonesia close to Australia in that island so we for six hours we were on the ocean but the waves was, were the very big so it was very dangerous and the pilot said no we should go back so they took us back to the that island again second day we did then he said oh, so our petrol Finish, and they uh, contacted uh, Jakarta, and they said, "Okay, we will send you petrol." They send a small boat, and Ali came to me and said, "Abel, oh, we should go back with that small boat, <laughs> go back to Indonesia." Yeah, I cannot do that. It's very dangerous. Yeah, I'm scared and this. And there was a competition between the people on the boat, because the boat was small. We were 60 people, the boat could take only like eight people back to Indonesia, the boat that brought us petrol. And Ali said, I sh- yeah, I cannot do that. I said that if you are a stupid, come with us to Australia, that we do it, but if you really, you, you are not a stupid, okay. It's the best way is to just go back to Indonesia. We went to Australia, so Ali went back. I was in Christmas Island. After 20 days, someone was calling me, Beirut, in behind the fence. And I saw that was Ali. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing here? He said, I went back to Indonesia, but later the smuggler got a big boat. So I <laughs> felt safe and I came. So the number of my boat was 810, and he was like 850. So Australia started to send the first boat to Manus Island. Each week, one uh, plane, you know. After five months, so Ali, he was in the queue, in the line to be sent back to Manus Island. but. We did a riot or a protest in Manus Island and they stopped sending people and said, Okay, the people who are in who left in Christmas Island go to Australia and they are free. So he became free. He's free for <laughs> he's free for seven years. But I was in Manus Island for six years. And I think that is very interesting. <laughs> I was think that he was c- crying, but he, yeah. So, but he did that. So he went to Australia. So that was very interesting. But uh, and now chapter three. Just I should say something on base of my experience. That really, it is my understanding that. Courage is very related to hopelessness. When you are like that, you, are, you can do dangerous things. You can take risks. Uh, but for me, my understanding of bravery is that it's really difficult in this complicated world and in some ways this crazy world, to stay as a human, to be honest, to keep your principle, is very, very difficult. And I think the most bravest people are those people who still stand up for humanity, who still keep this principle alive, or it's very, difficult to be like that and my experience here when I got freedom it became a big news and uh, it was very difficult to say no to some offers say no to for example if I just give you a small example is that someone wanted to make, so i never look at my story as a personal story. Uh, as a, like a commercial, commercial story, or make you as a celebrity, you become a celebrity, it's easy to be this. And I have been struggling to don't let those people, I mean, this capitalist system to reduce this tragedy, which is not my tragedy. It is a, yeah, it's a big story to, yeah, this culture that I'm talking about. It's very difficult and I still am struggling, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure and that I became a part of the system or not. In some ways, I became a part of the system. Yeah, it's very difficult, it's very complicated uh, thing, but that is my understanding of bravery. Yeah, thank you.
0: We should talk about your understanding of bravery because you didn't go and fight with the Peshmerga, but you did write for a Kurdish newspaper at great personal risk and, in fact, when you were away, that newspaper was raided and the people that you worked with were arrested and imprisoned and that was the beginning of the journey that led you to here. It was an act of immense bravery and it was you asserting that your bravery was going to take the form of words. So thank you for your bravery, thank you for being here tonight. Right, Laura-Jean Mackay. Uh, Dr Laura-Jean Mackay's The Animals in That Country has received rave review after rave review after rave review but my favourite, or my favourite sentence from review came from RNZ, it's bonkers but it's fantastic. The Guardian, by the way, called it fierce and funny, which is the same as bonkers but fantastic, only with the restraint of an expensive English education. (laughs) But they're both right. It's been a mad few weeks. And I finally, I'm ashamed to say, Laura, bought uh, The Animals in That Country on Wednesday. And I started reading it, and I just... It was just... (laughs) And I kept reading it, and I finished it on the plane on the way down. Uh, I love how unabashed it is. It has glorious self-belief from its brilliant and outrageous central conceit to its characters, human and animal, to its language. The writing feels really liberated and adult in the best way. It never once falters or looks over its own shoulder. And while you wouldn't expect me to have forgotten it, given that I only finished it this afternoon, I won't forget it. Uh, Especially Jean, who is so persuasively human, and Sue, who's a dingo. I really recommend this book. Uh, it makes me want to do Dr. Mackay's creative writing courses at Massey University, not uh, not because I could ever hope to write so well, but because I would love to write that fearlessly and swear that much. There's a tremendous amount of swearing in the book, uh, not something TVNZ is keen for me to do. <laughs> Dr. Mackay is, by the way, the only one of our writers whose words to note I know in advance because they've been published on the spin-off. I'm rather hoping that I don't know, Elizabeth, I don't want to force anything upon you, but I'm rather hoping everything that's been said tonight is published. So, gratefully, welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura-Jean McKay. Uh,
2: tēnā katoa. Uh, ko Laura-Jean McKay tōko Tēnā 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 It is so wonderful to be here in one of the bravest cities um, I've known. Uh, And on stage with the the bravest writers uh, that I've read. Uh, I'm I'm here with my literary heroes. Uh, So we might see my talk as sort of a a grim intermission between between, um, some absolute brilliance. (laughs) Uh, I'll begin. Stage one, beg. To be honest, I begged her not to go. I wasn't considering how she'd lost her ability to move or that she'd been here for 93 years and her last sentence was, I've had just about about enough of this. I said, Nana, don't leave me here. I meant to add, alone. She gave me a look that was the very definition of world-weary. Zoologist Edward O. Wilson says that we're not living in the era of the Anthropocene, the age of humans, but rather in the Amerocene, the age of loneliness. In the Amerocene, we watch extinctions occur. Photos of lonesome George, the last surviving Pinta Island tortoise. The sonar trails of the only Christmas Island pipistrelle microbat. The fruitless search for the South Island, Kōkako. Until we are left alone in an environment entirely of our own making. I bring this up because sitting in that nursing home about to lose the woman who was more a parent than a grandmother to me, I felt a loneliness that seemed to span an epoch. Nana was still there, I could touch her hand, but I was bearing witness to lasts. Words, meal, breath. A soft boiled lunch arrived on a trolley but Nana couldn't eat it. She was having trouble swallowing and at that age and stage of dementia she wouldn't be kept alive. I rubbed water over her lips letting some go into her mouth. She nodded firmly. Good idea. In the coming years this desolate feeling would expand beyond Nana's small nursing home room, beyond any grief I ever had, to the collective loneliness that is this moment in time. To stay and bear witness is not particularly courageous. Not many people with my level of privilege, a uh, Tau'iwi colonial Australian woman in the Antipodes know that sort of courage that most people need daily. I have too much blood on my hands, and take note, I do not have the courage to write about the blood on my hands here. But if this is about facing fears, I have some. Ecofeminist Donna Haraway talks about staying with the trouble, which requires learning to be truly present as mortal critters entwined in myriad, unfinished configurations of place. Times, matters, meanings. Stage two, sit with me. I'm not afraid of death. It's no stranger to our family. My baby photos are backgrounded with my mum's and brother's grieving faces. My dad died at 27, an age where he wrote poetry, had only recently swapped out purple hot pants for jeans and was expecting a second child, me, that he didn't live to see. Later, Dad's mum in her 60s, Dad's brother in his 50s. Then, as I was an adult friend whose losses hurt so much, I broke my tear ducts from crying. I actually had to go and get a tear duct operation. By 2015, I was watching the weather out a nursing home window near Melbourne, Victoria. I had been taking photos of Nana's hands on the knitted rug, hands that had always seemed to me like tree roots holding everything together, now thin and cracked dried leaves. Finally, I said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow, and tried to stand, but I was caught on something. This dying woman had got a grip on my shirt like there was no tomorrow. She frowned at her hand like it was speaking without her. A damn well sat down again. So that year's spring was one of loss. In the Northern Hemisphere, the promised summer came earlier and more ferocious than usual. On the Kazakh plains, and a male saga antelope, a moose like creature with elegant striped horns and a comically bulbous nose, was hot, too hot, possibly the hottest he'd ever been. The rest of the herd was overheating too. The saga's vacuum like nose is host to a bacteria that usually dwells there quite benignly but the heat that spring caused it to multiply to fatal proportions through the bodies of the population. Some 200,000 sega died, 70% of the entire species. Closer to where we sat in the nursing home, in the same country at least, a spotlight had been turned on a native rodent called the Bramble Key melomys. The species had existed for millennia, snacking on turtle eggs and avoiding seabirds on a vegetated plot of coral Key, sitting just above sea level at the tip of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. The mouse became the first mammal in the world to become extinct solely due to climate change. Rising sea levels and increased severe storms washed the entire species away. So if I'm making 2015 seem like a hell of a year for endangerment and extinction, it actually wasn't. We'd only just started catching up. We were turning our heads to search for animals that most certainly had disappeared forever and on our watch. Elizabeth Colbert had just released her book, The Sixth Extinction, in which she chronicles the largest species decimation in 65 million years. I went to see her at a writers' festival just like this, part of a Melbourne audience begging for her to tell us that it would be okay, but she didn't. She fairly slumped in her seat on the stage and articulately shattered our dreams. Stage three, breathe. I stayed with my grandmother. I slept on a foam mat on the floor by her bed. She knew I was down there. More trolleys rolled down the hall and every few hours a carer burst into the room to check Nana's pulse. Nana and I are both both startled then settled, appraising each other through the gloom. And in the morning, we had breakfast. No, I ate. She couldn't. And then she couldn't swallow. And then she struggled to breathe. The rest of our family arrived. We sat by her talking, the usual scenario of her spirited daughters and grandchildren nattering away while she observed us with the keenness of a bird eyeing a worm. Except now she had her eyes closed. The smaller her life got, the closer we drew around her bed. In her essay, Do We Care About Animals Enough to Save Them from Extinction, Jane Rawson wonders whether, if animals were somehow individualised, would we care more about their disappearance? Witness, she writes, the online grief and chest beating when the last male white northern rhino died. Contrast it with the complete silence when the hundreds of thousands of white northern rhinos who came before him met untimely ends. Fast forward to 2020 now, where we face our own collective demise. To date, over one million people have been killed by coronavirus. A tiny percentage in an overpopulated planet of eight billion, but enough for us to strive on a massive global effort not to catch it and die in the tens of millions. At that scale, it's hard to individualise. It's hard to comprehend. Rare are the stories of single victims or survivors beyond the Trump family and other weird celebrities. (laughs) It's a virus born in the flesh of dead animals. It tends to target older people. It's scary and it's also a list of of statistics. Courage 2020 style is found in staying indoors and watching TV. And we wake with a feeling I can only equate with either guilt or grief. It's true. I'm still here. And they're gone. Stage four. Stay with the trouble. A crow narrator in Max Porter's novel, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, states that they find humans dull except for in grief. In grief, the bird feels, humans are pure crow. In the final moments with Nana, I felt like her death coach. Come on, you can do it. She ignored me, held on. She was very strong. I could see her fighting to breathe even when she stopped breathing. Her big, powerful heart just kept going and going. I looked up at my family, incredulous. Was this courage? A superwoman who can live without food or breath? You see, she'll never die. Of course she died. The loss of her pecked out my voice and clawed my heart. My left eye began to flutter, like it was trying to get out. In her poem, Grieving, writer Takare Papuni or J.C. Stern expresses it best. You bugger, dying without me, leaving me stranded. Stage five. Try this on. What do we have left when a life is lost and we don't have the words to describe it? Remains, memories, objects. The grainy black and white footage of the last Tasmanian tiger, thylacine, one of the world's biggest carnivorous marsupials, pacing back and forth in a bear cage, a low tail fetching stripes. The stories of a gun cracking over the Auckland harbour as the governor of New Zealand shot the last pair of southern merganser ducks in 1902. A picture of a seal caught in in the giant soup that is the great Pacific garbage patch. In my aunt's house, the unslept hysterical laughter of women unpacking and repacking boxes, the masses of meat, the early whiskey, the late history, the sudden, hot argument, a sweet smell, pressed flowers, felt hats, rings in a dish, teeth in a glass, lipsticks ground to the end of colour. I try on the rings that I now keep in a box, but whenever I do, I feel silly. A girl again, dressing up in Nana's fox fur stole, creepily designed so that the mouth open and the fox somehow bit its own tail. Is it equally foolish? to visit the delicately laid out skulls of extinct Moa, Haast Eagle and Huya in Te Papa? Why do we keep these remains if we can't stop our own carnage? Why do I try on the rings if I too will die? I don't have the courage to bring children into this kind of world, so who will I pass these shiny things to? We keep these relics, of course, to bear witness, to make physical the soupy chaos to give ourselves the courage to at least know we're not faking the grief. See, I didn't imagine it. They existed. Here they are in a box. So I call the family and friends that I have left, trying to reach them over the coronavirus oceans, otherwise known as the ditch. They respond. When we finish talking, I go out to stare at the animals. There are more cows than native birds. I breathe in their chocolatey smell and look over the fields where blackbirds pick at the grains there. I see trouble, I sit with it.
0: Uh, that That ability to go back and forth to, to to occupy the human and animal world simultaneously and to and and to expose us as sometimes way less than we think we are and to elevate animals to way more than we credit them as being is precisely what you do so brilliantly in that fantastic novel It was a lovely insight into that capacity to do those things it was. Fantastic piece of writing. So, Laura Jean Mackay, um, I love your book, The Animals in That Country, and that was fantastic. Thank you. This is such a great night. And we're coming now to our final writer, Witi Ihimaera. Um, We all know this. Witi's writing is in us now. We carry it with us in the kete of our country. Namu, poor Namu, tangi, Fano, the matriarch, the whale rider, knights in the gardens of Spain, the dream swimmer, on they go, and I haven't even reached the century yet that he was the first Māori writer to have a novel and a collection of short stories published. says much about his talent, but also given this wasn't until the early 70s, it also says something about our shameful exclusion of Māori voices. But he has spent very nearly 50 years helping to address that. Esa May Ranapiri put it perfectly, the ongoing search for a Māori place in a colonised world where all ourselves are held up to the light where they glow. Yes. I once interviewed Witty with his dad, Tom. I've been a journalist for about 30 years, and it was one of my happiest ever shoots. Their love for each other, the way Tom hung on every word, his eyes sparkling, the way they held hands, their love of history, their history and our history, and I wonder now if among witty's many great gifts to us has been to take "fano," a word which was very seldom used by anyone other than Māori when I was growing up, and to make us all desire this Māori understanding of family for us all. His has been the generosity of opening doors so the rest of us, who too often had not tried hard enough, could see the lives inside. This makes him a brilliant memoirist, by the way, and Māori boy and native son are highly recommended. So where will he take us now, still following him, still learning from him, still enriched by him all these years on? Ke te rangatira te nākwe. Please welcome. Witi ihimāra.
3: You know, the good thing is that I'm partly deaf, so I never hear half of what he says. (laughs) And the other thing, of course, is that I have this wonderful saying by a journalist named Ann Landers, so whenever I come and speak to anybody, I always think of Ann Landers, who said that things are darkest before they become totally black. (laughs) Um, I don't think of myself as particularly courageous, John. There are people in this hall more courageous than I, but whenever I have needed to show courage, I have intervened, and I have actually come off the worst for it. (laughs) Because that is the reality. You are not always a hero, and you do not always win. Love doesn't always win. The right doesn't always hold. There's a line, however, that you must draw in your mind about what you can accept and what you will not accept, abuse of women, bullying, threats to kill other people and to yourself. The most courageous thing I ever saw was on a beach in British Guyana. My friends had taken me there at night and I wasn't sure what to expect. Then came the blood red dawn and in the sky the massing of huge black clouds of seagulls. And beyond the breakwater, the sea began to foam with seething fish. Then suddenly, up from the sand, came little turtles. Little turtles, hundreds of them, and they began their terror-stricken run across the beach to the sea, their fins working like crazy, to try to get to the sea. Did they know of the gulls? Did they know of the fish? What they did know was that they had to survive mindlessly triggered by some force of nature to beat the odds to go beyond that blood-red sunrise, those screeching gulls, and the fish jumping in ecstasy, awaiting their kai. All I could think of was, go, you little beggars, go. And that's what I want to say to us tonight. Kinga ihi kaitahu or ota utahi ngamihi, akurangatira hurinoa hurinoa ite fare, te ne ngamihi atu keako tu harmaiki te ne mahiyote po. Tuatahi, I stand on this marai and I hold a wooden rako up to the sky. It is a small spear tufted with bird feathers. It is my first rako, the warning spear known as the waka ara ara, and I fling it. Into the bright world above, and I ask the rako as it flies, E here hatau e ki te atu ana ia koe e re, re ana I te What do you see as you traverse across the sky, in this world, in that world, in the world behind, in all the brave new worlds we stand in, and in the world coming towards us? And the rako calls back to me, Kia manawanui, be of good heart. The Wa, the great energy that made our world, is still flowing. It is as raging as a river, gushing out of Tikore, the abyss at the very beginning of time and space. Through Teppur, the great night it still rushes, and across Te Ao, the world of light it flows, and thus is still sustained the Ada, the pathway for all life. But look, Ehor, the portal, the future into which the river pours, is closing. Can you see it closing? The portal to the future is closing. Tuarua, I take up my second wooden rako, my small spear with tufted feathers. It is the rako Takoto, the one that lays down the kopapa, the one which enunciates the person, the purpose of the wa. And this spear I fling even higher into the heavens. Eterako. Her hatau. Why is the portal to the future, into which pours the energy of the world, why is it closing? And the Rākō calls to me. Its closing is due entirely to the actions of humankind. And no better warning, of course, applies than the one we have had at hand for you people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in this very place we stand, Christchurch, on 15 March 2019, the heavens over all our heads changed They changed forever when two mosques suffered a terrorist attack and created a new consciousness of man's inhumanity to man. A phenomenon that the Māori called the Great Podi, the Great Darkness, settled on Aotearoa. Terror, normally associated with other hemispheres, had targeted ours. How could this be? The humanitarian compulsion of Rungo, god of peace, was falling to the actions of Tu Mataunga, god of war. Therefore, the portal was being hastened to closure by devastating human wars. 15 March 2019 and subsequently COVID-19 are warning signs that we must all recommit to aroha ki iwi and to take up greater activist thinking to stop the future closing, to act strategically for peace before it is too late to call on our world leaders with louder voices to introduce international structural change, not just against racism, but to prevent ourselves from being overrun with hate, but to also obtain equity, equality and justice in all countries, not just here. You all, to act as history's witnesses, to stand up for international governmental and judicial practices that provide safety for all our peoples and against politicians who, when they fight, are like big animals that trample all the grasses underfoot. The powerless require our voices. The populations suffering famine caused by ongoing wars need rescue. People must have access to clean drinking water, not just here. They need safe homes. One child is everyone's child. One sister is everyone's sister. One migrant family is everyone's family. Black lives do matter. Hōpō pō e tangi ki te kaimana waiho wai me te tiki ake ki te pō a hōkai i a mai te papake ki utara he wai u motama. kia Kia hōmahi e tōtupuna e wenu ku ko te kumara Ko whārinu i tērā ka hiki mata te tapu wai o tangaroa Ka fai mata te tapu wai o tangaroa tangaroa All our royal children, our royal children are crying for sustenance. The legacy of the royal food, the legacy of the kumara. They seek knowledge of how to keep that portal open because it is their future, not ours. It is their health, not ours. It is their hopes and dreams, not ours. We have failed them. It is their hopes and dreams not ours. On the same day of the mosque attacks, schoolchildren around the world put down the where or the challenge to the escalating climate crisis. No longer would they be seen and not heard. That takes courage. No longer would they act according to an aging power elite and the inability of their elders to secure the future not just for themselves but also for their entire world. Their keystone, their keystone species are facing catastrophic decline. Ecologists are talking of moving animal, bird, and tree species from failing biosystems to places where their accustomed band of existence will be available to them and governments will be doing the same for the human species as climate refugees add to our current refugee crisis by seeking human biosystems that will accept them. You think you're lucky to live in New Zealand? You better believe it. The earth is 4.6 billion years old. Let's scale that to 46 years. Humankind has been here for four hours. In that time we have destroyed more than 50% of our world's forests, the atmosphere we breathe, and decimated our oceanic environment. The earth is crying. La terre pleure, umlaba uyakala, te tepenua. But you know the earth in crying does not cry for itself itself does not matter but it cries for us the people whom it's supposed to serve Maori people say ma te we te moana ma te tangata if the land is thick and the ocean is thick the people will get the wire will stop flowing that portal that portal that portal will surely surely close. Tuatoru, I hold my third and final rako, my rako whakawaha, my spear with tufted feathers that is designed, hopefully, to keep that portal open. In my latest book, Navigating the Stars, I write, "Mēmato Kipetu, ki whetu i mua kōkiri o te haire. Before you set forth on a journey, be sure you know the stars. Well, we know those stars. They are not good, not good for the Mukopona, the grandchildren. But we must collectively face the challenges and move forward on a new journey together. We may be able to redeem ourselves. Women have a further separate journey to take. The MeToo hashtag movement must maintain its momentum. It has to for the survival of women. It is very simple. We have to get into legacy formulation. We have to bring our best game right now, starting right here, even though it is already late. No matter man's inhumanity to man, the rise of white supremacist rhetoric, the individualist nihilism that is affecting how some governments reorganise their policies, the decline in social democratic thought, the constant attacks on the virtue of collective action for the collective good, we've just got to create those redemptive possibilities. Oh so what does it mean to find courage? What does it mean to find courage in this horrendous world that is collapsing all around us in the face of a global pandemic, race protests, border strife and climate anxiety? It does mean knowing what fear is, it does mean knowing what death is, it does mean if we are required to, to put ourselves on the firing line. But it does also mean knowing what not to give up and what love is. Aroha whenua, aroha moana, aroha it means everyone in this hall facing the future as an iwi, as a whanau, as John mentioned, with determination to make a difference every day, to keep standing no matter the sand shifting beneath our feet, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, partners, grandparents, friends, strangers, you don't slip, don't fall, just keep holding each other up, because you will have to stand forever. And I'm so honored to be among you. What greater kopapa do we have than to ensure through every means within our power the maintenance of the portal against the world's collapse, to be kaitiaki of the threshold for the mokopuna's unfolding future? The task is momentous, but kia kahanga hoa, let us together Therefore, aim the prow of our waka at the first star now. The constellations lie like archipelagos across the dark ocean. Let us pull ourselves along the sky rope to the second star. Take account of the sun as it sets and hold true on our course to the third star. Let Kadakia open our way to the zenith star, where today becomes tomorrow and where the portal waits, waits for us to stand strong and to keep it open. So now on your behalf and mine, I fling that third rako into the topmost heavens. Fly, O tufted spear, and plant yourself in the future. After all, humanity has such beautiful grandchildren to work for.
0: This has been a magic evening, and um, I I want to say to you six on the stage, thank you for bringing so much of yourselves, for giving so much of yourselves. You know um, uh, Martha Gellhorn, Martha Gellhorn was a journalist, uh, infamously, really appallingly better known for being Ernest Hemingway's mistress, but in fact she was a, a brilliant war journalist who wrote, one of the first female war correspondents who wrote brilliantly, and at the end of her life, she was asked about it, uh, and she said, all my life I have thrown small stones into a large pond, and I have no idea whether they made even the slightest ripple, but I don't need to worry about that. My responsibility was the effort. Now, you do make ripples in the pond of us, but your effort tonight was extraordinary. And so we are so grateful for it. And it has been such a pleasure being here. Elizabeth Knox, Muhammad Hassan, Becky Manuatu, Beirous Buchani, Laura Jean Mackay, and witty Ihamara. Thank you so, so much.